Uh, We read just a few minutes ago from one of the great stories of the Old Testament, actually, a story that's not very well known, but uh, is one of the climaxes of the entire Old Testament. This is uh, David, King David, and the story of the books of Samuel. And a lot of, if you read commentators on this passage, you'll, you'll get language like this. One commentator says that this is David at his best. It is the moral climax of his kingship. And one of the interesting things about it is that he's in the midst, if you look back at chapter 8, chapter 10, just after, he's in the midst of triumphing over his enemies in war. And then this story is sandwiched in between all military conquest narrative. And so in some ways, it doesn't fit. We call it an inclusio. It's a sandwich text. It doesn't make sense where it sits. And the reason for that is because it's a highlight. It's trying to stop and say, "Look look at this David in the midst of David at war. Now, as Christians, you know, we, we come to the David story, and we've been coming to the David story for 2,000 years, knowing that he's very important for understanding Christianity. And one of the reasons for that is when you open up the New Testament on page 1, Matthew 1, the very first identification marker of who Jesus Christ is is it says that he is first the son of David. And so immediately the gospel writer tells you that David and the Davidic line is extremely important for understanding Jesus Christ. But it's not just a matter of bloodline. It's not just genealogy. It's more than that. Uh, The New Testament, Hebrews 11 and other places, makes very clear that David is important for Jesus, not just by way of blood, but as a a type, uh, as a shadow, as as a figure in the Old Testament of what we're looking for in messianic hope. And we can come back to David's story, the New Testament tells us then, and ask questions like, well, what do we, what do we want in a true king? And so you come to this passage and you ask the question, what is the nature of true kingship? Um, actually, the Old Testament tells you this too. Uh, the very last book of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, before it was rearranged in our English ordering, is Chronicles. And Chronicles, six times and six mountain peaks across Chronicles, has this line where it says, the son of David, king of Israel. That's the Bible that Jesus would have read from. It would have ended in Chronicles. And then you flip the page, and the gospel writer, Matthew 1, says, the son of David, the very first sentence, picking up on the six-fold theme of Chronicles. It's the seventh It's the seventh moment. It's the Sabbath. It's, he's the son of David, Matthew chapter 1. And so we come today to 2 Samuel 9 just for a few minutes to ask the question, what's the nature of true kingship? And what do we long for in a a true Messiah then? And so let's look at two things, and we'll see first the kindness of the king and then the mercy of the king. Okay, so first, the kindness of the king. In verse 1, King David wants to give a gift. And the gift he wants to give is what he calls kindness. Uh, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Uh, this shows up in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7, this word kindness. And he says kindness for Jonathan's sake, meaning there's a backstory here. And the backstory is that, of, as you'll probably know if, if you've been in the church for any time, that the first great king of Israel was Saul. And Saul was cursed by God. He had rebelled against God and 
three significant ways, and God had cursed Saul, and he had chosen David. Saul was the tallest man, the most beautiful man, and David was small, and he was the youngest of his family. He was very unlikely king, but he was chosen by God. And Jonathan is Saul's son. And when you think about that, you'll know very quickly that if there's anybody who has the right to the throne after Saul, it is not David, it is Jonathan. Jonathan is the bloodline of the king. He is by nature the heir of the throne. Even uh, when, when Saul finds out that David has been chosen to be the king, uh, he wants to, of course, murder David, and he tries to murder him many times throughout the passages, throughout the stories. Uh, and in one place, he says this, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you, Jonathan, nor your kingdom can be established. And so one of the main reasons that Saul wanted to kill David is because he says, my son can't be king as long as David's around. And I want my dynasty, I want my bloodline to be established as the kingship forever. But in 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan, the rightful king, the heir, the prince, the crown prince, he gets down on his knees, the text tells us. He takes off his royal robe, he unfastens his sword, his belt, his bow, and he lays it at the feet of David. And you, know, you see what he's saying? He's saying, I give away my royalty to you. My, my right is now yours. And he says, I will die even if at the hand of my own father for the sake of acknowledging your kingship. And at that moment, there's a word exchange a covenant is made. And Jonathan says, swear to me that you will not cut off your kindness to my house forever. And so David swears because Jonathan had laid down his royalty for David in deep friendship, loving friendship. And this is the kindness. He, David received kindness from Jonathan. And then Jonathan says, swear to me that you will show this kindness to someone in my household and my offspring now, this kindness, uh, in other words, it's the gift at the center of covenant making. Whenever a covenant is made, this is the word that shows up, and it's kindness. But uh, when you ask what it is, the English word kindness isn't sufficient. It's, it's a very special Hebrew word. It's the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And the place it shows up almost every time throughout the Old Testament, is whenever God comes down to make a covenant with people. God comes and shows his hesed love for people who don't deserve it. And David had received hesed love from Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne. And now David wants to turn around and show it here. In other words, what this text is saying to us on just the beginning is that it is possible for human beings to image the covenant love of God to other people. That you can actually, if you've received hesed from God, covenant love, when you didn't deserve it, it is possible for humans who've seen that power to actually give it to other people. And David here is trying to give it away. Now, just for a second, I want to hone, hone down on what this kind of love is because it's very, very important for us late modern 21st century people to think about this for a few minutes. Uh, this point has been made by many pastors. It's been made by a ton of sociologists. 
But today we enter into all sorts of relationships and we actually have more relationships today than ever before in human history. And one of the reasons for that is because of the market, the way our market is set up. We enter into retail relationships more than anybody else ever has in the history of the, of the world. So every single day you'll tap that card uh, on, on all sorts of electronic machines and you will enter into a momentary retail relationship, right? A contract. Uh, that contract is that this person, this company, this, um, this relationship is going to give you a good that you desire and you're going to give them a good that they desire, right? A typical market transaction. But we do these more than ever before in human history. We might tap our cards three, four, five, seven, ten times in a day. We have transactions like this all the time. And one of the things that sociologists uh, often say about us 21st century people and how much we're engaged in market relationships is that because life is so full of market and retail relationship, brief contract, that we've actually let contract relationships slip in to all the relationships of our lives, that we've let what is a, should be a contract, a brief momentary agreement, become something that's uh, embedded into the value system of our covenant relationships. You know, what are our covenant relationships? Our covenant relationships are marriage and dating, perhaps. It's friendship. It's commitment to the local church. It's a relationship with God himself. These are covenant relationships. But, it, but late modern people, more than anybody in all of history, have allowed those covenant relationships to be treated more like contract relationships. And so what happens is, is when we don't get the thing we want, just like in a market relationship, we leave. We flipped it on its head because what is a covenant relationship? One commentator says it like this. It's a love that is willing to deeply commit itself to another person by making a sacred promise to the point of great loss. Meaning it's a relationship where we're willing to lose ourselves for the sake of the other. But because of the fact that we live in a world of retail relationship, we actually have let those values creep into covenant relationships. And so I, I tell people all the time that St. Columbus, where I pastor now, but a place where I was, I was at first just a member when I was studying here in 2013 and, and, uh, and several years after that, um, it was a place where I was overwhelmed with how many people still treated the church in a, in a covenant relational way, where we were being overwhelmed with, with hesed kindness by people all the time. I get the sense that maybe this is a church that's like that as well, a place that loves one another deeply, commits to one another, will, to the point of where you're willing to lose your stuff, your time, your money, your talents, your gifts, whatever it may be, to the point of great cost. Uh, however, even, even if Redeemer is that place, uh, we're sinners, and we're 21st century people. And so that means we're always in danger of the drift, of the drift of letting covenant relationship be treated like it's a contract, as we see in the world around us all the time and the way people treat marriage, commitment of all sorts, right? And so here's the question. Has the retail relationship, the, the consumer mentality of modernity crept into my personal relationships, my covenant relationships, especially my relationship to the local church and to God himself and to my spouse if I'm married or my friendships? Here's uh, just one test and we'll move on. Um, do you have a covenant friendship? a real deep covenant friendship. 
Christian covenant friendship. Here, one of the ways you can tell is by asking the question, can, I, can my friend come to me and stab me in the front instead of the back and everything be okay? You know, getting stabbed in the back is treacherous. It's being gossiped about. It's where your friend goes and tells everybody else your weaknesses. But stabbed in the front, that's when your friend comes to you and makes you bleed with the surgeon's scalpel, you know, the one that is meant to heal you, not, not damage you. And they come, in other words, and they tell you the truth. They come and they say, look, this is where I think you are. This is what I think is going on in your life. This is the path I think you're walking down that's really damaging. These are the sins that, are come, that I see you walking towards. I'm, I'm concerned. I love you. I want, you I, want, I want Christ's life for you. Can, can, do you have a friend that can do that, that can come and do that to you? Uh, Paul, the apostle, puts it simply. He says, speak the truth in love. That's all we mean there. Do you have a friendship that speaks the truth in love? That's covenant friendship. That's deep love that's willing to even put, put the friendship to the test because of true love. And, and that's real covenant relationship. Now, it's not impossible to have relationships like this, but I, don't, I think it's never been harder in human history than now. And we could ask the question to close this point and move on to the second final point. How can David love like that? How can David love like that? How can he show kindness, hesed, the love of God to someone who doesn't deserve it? How does he have the resources? King David, the man who will, in just a couple chapters, uh, commit horrible, murderous sins against multiple people. How can he love like this? And the first place that we see the word hesed show up, kindness, in all of the Bible is uh, in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, this is where God makes his covenant with Abraham. And do you, if you've read through it, you might remember how he does it. Um, when it comes time to make the covenant, God wants to show kindness to Abraham. And here's, here's how. He says, Abraham, take a cow, a heifer, uh, a pigeon, turtle dove, a ram, cut them in half, split their bodies apart, and take the two pieces of this carcass and make a center aisle, just like this one here. And when it comes time, we are going to make this covenant with one another, and we're going to pass through. And what, this, is, um, this is something we see in the ancient Near East. It's a form of making a covenant oath. It's called an oath of malefaction. What you're doing in it is you're saying, uh, if I break the terms of the covenant, my promise and commitment to you, the other party, may I become like these carcasses split in half. And so to make the covenant, you walk between the pieces, acknowledging that this is what I will become if I break this covenant. Now, what happened? When it came time to make the covenant, God put Abraham to sleep. And God passed through twice, once for himself, once for Abraham. And you see what he's saying? He's saying, Abraham, I know that you don't have the resources. I know that you can't keep the covenant. I know what's in your heart. I know, I know it's all the way at the bottom of you. And so I commit that, Abraham, if, if you were to break this covenant, may I be cut in half for you. And you see, that, that is, that's the first time we see it. Hesed love, the, the giving of oneself to the point of great cost, even to death. And the reason that David could give hesed love is because, well, remember, Jonathan 
said, I give my royalty to you even to the point of death. I will die for you. And what that means is that David is not the first type or shadow of what it means to be Messiah in this text. The first one is the, is the one, is the, is the son of the king who stripped himself of his royalty, who humbled himself all the, way, all the way to the point of getting on his knees before his friend and saying, I will go to death for you. I, I will die to make you great. And you see, the first great type of the king that we need is not David, it's Jonathan. This is, the go- this is the good news of the Old Testament. This is the gospel woven into the sacred history. This is the proclamation that what we need in true kingship is a king who would humble himself all the way to the point of death so that we might know true friendship. Now, this is how David could give it. This is the kindness of the king. He had received it in Jonathan. Uh, but secondly, where do we get the power to live like this ourselves and let's, let's look at the mercy of the king finally. Now, we've made it through verse 1. Now we have verses 2 to 13, but we'll go a lot faster. Um, f- from verse 2, king, we find out King David wants to give this hesed love to Mephibosheth. And um, Mephibosheth is an interesting figure. Um, just like today, if you want to get a job today, you need to have marketable skills. You know, you need to have a CV that's got the prerequisites in place to, to get hired by whoever you're, you're looking to get hired by. Well, there was, a, there was a similar thing in the ancient Near East. There was a CV in the ancient Near East. It was different than ours, although it overlaps in some ways. But the main question in the ancient Near East is, who is your father? How much land do you own? You know, what's your bloodline? Uh, questions like these that mark your CV. If you didn't have a, C, a qualifying CV, then you were going to be poor. That was just the only way. There was no way out. Uh, that's the, the mark across all the ancient Near East. There's no, there's no mobility of the social ladder. Um, when you look at Mephibosheth's CV here, uh, everything is wrong. Just let me spell it out for you. Um, name is very important in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, what you're named uh, it Bosheth, Mephibosheth, the second half of it, it Bosheth, it means shame. His name translated is literally shame. And Mephib- Mephibosheth, when you add the, the prefix, it means out of, out of the mouth of shame. So his name is out of the mouth of shame. Why is he called that? Because he's, uh, his bloodline, most important question of your CV, he is the grandson of Saul the disgraced and cursed king who was ruined and pronounced uh, unfit by God. Um, He's the last living relative of Saul's lineage. Uh, So his name is Shame. He's a disgraced, he's of disgraced blood. Um, Where is he from? Verse 4, he's from Lo-Debar. Lo-Debar, Lo means no, no, and Debar means place. Uh, he's literally from no place, nowhere, is what it translates to. Uh, the writer's doing something here. Um, he's from Nowhereville, if you could give the place he's from a name. Um, very significantly, the text goes out of its way twice uh, to say that he's disabled. He, the text in ESV reads that he is lame in both of his feet. It's so emphatic uh, that it sh- it's the very last thing we read about him. In verse 13, 
after the, all of the kindness that he receives, now he was lame in both his feet. It's the way the passage ends. And that's really significant um, because to be disabled in the ancient Near East is a death sentence. Uh, it's, it, you're poverty-stricken, very likely, unless you have an unusual kindness from someone. But most of the time, uh, disability was treated really poorly in the ancient world. And so it, it often meant that you were left to die. If you couldn't function, if you couldn't move, uh, if if you didn't have the use of your feet, How, why was he disabled? Because in Second Samuel four, when he was running away uh, as as a young child, he was fleeing a group of David's men who had come to kill part of Saul's household, and he was in that household. And his nurse picked him up, ran away from David's men, fell on him, and crushed both his legs. And, of course, he couldn't get any treatment to fix that, and so he, he's disabled for the rest of his life, running away from David's men. Um, but even more than all of that, lastly, um, in verse 6, you'll see that when he comes to see the king at the palace, he falls onto his face and lays prostrate. And David speaks a word and says, fear not. Now, the, the, this is really significant. The reason for this is, uh, let me put it in the words of one of the great Old Testament commentators, Walter Brueggemann. Uh, Brueggemann says this, when a new regime or a dynasty comes to power, the name of the game is purge. You needn't go wandering into the ancient Near East to find this out. You can stay within the pages of the biblical story and watch Basha, Zimri, Jehu, or even David to find out what happens to the remnants of the previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It's conventional political policy. Solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. As soon as the new king comes onto the scene in any ancient Near Eastern society, what do they do? They murder everyone who was involved in the previous king's regime. The entire bloodline, the servants, the military commanders, all of it. David did it. He, he had killed most of the people in Saul's regime. And so we have this person, Mephibosheth, who's appearing before uh, David, and his name is Shame. He's from nowhere. He's the grandson of the cursed bloodline. He's disabled in a place with no care for disability. He's absolutely poor. He's a slave. Even more, he is the enemy of the state, the last living blood lineage of the cursed regime that has passed. Um, and that means that when he shows up uh, before David, he knows what he's showing up in front of. You know, in the, in the ancient world and even in the biblical model, the king serves two offices, not one. So the king in the, in the Old Testament is both the king, the absolute ruler of the land, who has final say on all matters, uh, he rules, but he also is the justice of the land. He's the judge, right? So anytime we see court cases in the ancient world, where do they, where do they meet? They meet before the king's throne, throne not before some judiciary in a, in a wig and a black, black robe. It's, it's the king. He's the judge. And so when Mephibosheth finally gets called in front of the king, he knows, I've gone to see the judge. And he knows what he deserves, and the customs of the ancient Near East, what he deserves. He, he, he lays down before David, giving, offering his neck, begging for mercy, hoping maybe, but knowing that it's his time. He's shocked that he's lasted this long. Uh, he's, he has to die. He's from the cursed bloodline. And David 
instead says, fear not, puts his hand on Mephibosheth's shoulder and says, now you are my son. Now, (laughs) this, you see, this is why this is the climax of David's kingship in this weird unknown story. Uh, This means that God, the writer of scripture, has written the gospel into the text from day one. And that the hope of true kingship is that we would have a king who is the true judge. And enemies that that do indeed come before him laying on our faces saying, I know what I deserve. But that that king would say, fear not. You were once my enemy, but today I will call you my son. Today I will call you my daughter. And from now on you will eat at at my table, at the king's table for all of your days. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is the nature of true kingship. And even more than that, it's a king who, 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 was, who not only gave away but was stripped. You know, he, 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 like Jonathan, took off his royalty, and he was stripped naked and hung on the cross so that when we appear before him in the throne room, he could say, fear not, you're my son, you're my daughter. And in Mephibosheth, we see who we are, we see what we deserve, and we see what the king has given us. Uh, This is the good news of the Old Testament that screams of a woven and sacred history from the beginning, that God was always doing one thing. Uh, When we come to the Lord's Supper, this is exactly the pronouncement that we hear. You were once my enemy, but now you're my son, you're my daughter. Come and eat at my table. In other words, the, king, the king's table is the pronouncement of the power of the cross and the resurrection to bring people who are far off to the table of God. And I'll close with this. Um, one, of my, one of my old professors uh, at, when I was studying in seminary at Reformed Theological in the States, he uh, mentioned this about this passage. Um, he asked the question, who ate at this table? You know, we're told at the very end of the passage that for all of his days... Mephibosheth came to David's table and ate at David's table. Who, who else was eating at David's table in those days? And we know uh, Amnon. Amnon was David's true oldest son and what the text calls a mighty man. Uh, Tamar, who was said to be the most beautiful woman that Israel had ever seen. Absalom, that there was not a blemish from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, is how Samuel puts it. Uh, Joab, the captain of David's army, who is described as a Herculean figure across the story of David. And Solomon, who was to be the next king, who is the wisest man in Israel's history. And so every single day, can you picture it, uh, Mephibosheth, who's named Shame, who's, who's been a poor slave, an enemy of the state, he comes to the king's table and he sits next to the most beautiful and the strongest in all the land. But it's him that all of these people would have said, there's Mephibosheth, he was once the enemy of the king, now he's the son. And that's the good news of the gospel. The cro- in, in other words, we could say it like this, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proclamation of God to you today, his enemy to come and feast at the table of the king, that once you were far off, but now you are close.
And so uh, it's an invitation today, even if you've believed the gospel for 50 years, come today and believe. Today is the Sabbath. Take hold of this king by faith today as you step into Monday. Come and rest at the table of the king, Jesus Christ. Take a moment now with me in prayer to come and rest at the table of the king in your heart. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, by faith, take hold of the good news, and I ask, Lord, that you would meet each of us in our hearts right now, and that we would see the beauty, the mercy, the hesed love that's been poured out to us in Jesus Christ. And we give thanks, O King, our King, Christ, for giving us a seat at your table forever. We long for the day when we will break bread with you in the new heavens and the new earth uh, as we feast with one another both in worship and at times and amongst the Christian body in the hospitality of our homes. Lord, help us to never forget that these are small commemorations that point forward to the day where we will see you face to face. So give us desire for you, O Christ, above all other things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.